Good evening and happy Sabbath to everyone. It is a privilege to be here with you all. And I'm thankful to God for the opportunity to talk with his people tonight. There are some very important things that heaven desires to impart to our hearts. It's going to be imperative, brothers and sisters, that we truly pray as we hear God speak to us tonight. Because I'm fully convinced that great things are happening in this world and it's all taking place to let us know that time is almost finished. Everything we've ever studied about, everything we've ever done our seminars about, the things that we have done and demonstrated through the books of Daniel and Revelation, we are literally seeing them come to pass. And I believe with all my heart that one of the great reasons why this crisis that the Bible speaks about has not taken place yet is because God in love and mercy is looking down upon his own people and he's saying they're not ready yet. They're not ready yet. And brothers and sisters, the whole focus of everything that we should do should be to get ready. I am not here to entertain. We're going to have some very serious discussions this weekend. We're going to come face to face with ourselves and with the word of God. And we want God to speak to our hearts. And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you the truth. I am pleading with God. I'm saying, Lord, do something in my own heart. Get me ready for this final crisis, Father. Help me to get ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. So I stand before you not as a superior man to you. I stand before you as a man in need of Jesus just like you. And I'm serious about that. I am dead serious about that. And so, brothers and sisters, as we prepare to go into tonight's topic, entering within the veil. As much as you're able to, I'm going to invite you to kneel with me as we approach God's throne in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege and the opportunity to worship you on this, your holy Sabbath day of rest. We are grateful that you have given us power to keep holy every hour. And Lord, this power that you have given to us, dear God, it is not by natural might nor by natural power, but it's by your spirit that we can truly do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Father, we have sinned against you in word, thought, and deed. Perhaps even as we were about to come into these doors, there may have been things that have not been confessed. And if so, please bring it to our remembrance even now that we may confess it, forsake it, and overcome it by your grace. Lord, do something special in these meetings. Lord, we have meetings after meetings after meetings, and heaven is just still wondering, are they getting it? Help us, Father, to cooperate with you as you speak to our hearts tonight. And Lord, I give myself to you afresh. Please take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. 
And may you open all of our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things from your word. It's our prayer that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I was just on the phone with my wife. And I really love talking to my wife. I'm so thankful that I can honestly say without flinching that I love my bride. And as she and I were talking, you know, as I was talking with her, I found myself nervous. A lot of times people always say, Brother Lemon, do you get nervous before you speak? I say, every time. Every time. Because brothers and sisters, I'm handling something that is more precious than gold. Ministers of the gospel, when they preach the word of God, they are handling the most precious treasure that could ever be put into the hand of a man, the word of God. And it's imperative that the minister gives the people the word as meat in due season. And so I found myself talking with her. I said, honey, I just need to talk to you. And as we were talking and everything, I, I often do this when I travel. And if I'm somewhere without my bride, I always ask her, honey, can you pray? Please pray for me. And she, of course, agreed gladly and she prayed with me and I felt that peace of God and I found myself that when I got off the phone I said Lord I long to see her face and God was impressing on my heart at that very moment to say magnify what you feel times infinity God says I long to look my bride face to face you see, when you go to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, I want you to see something. God longs to look at his bride face to face. The Bible says in Genesis, chapter 2, you're going to find that many of the scriptures that we will review are going to be that which you've heard before. All we want to do is review it and receive it in our hearts that we may be transformed. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, you know what it says in verse 7, God tenderly, while he was speaking everything else into existence, when it came to the one whom he would deem to be his bride, God knew that it's going to take more than just speaking this into existence. God says, I need to get my hands into this. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, it says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. This same being that God made, both from Adam and Eve, it is interesting how God eventually, as he was creating man with that great desire to commune with man. Brothers and sisters, God made you because he needed you. He made me because he needed me. God made us for communion, not just to have a whole bunch of servants. When God made us, his desire was to enjoy time with his creation. The Bible says in verse 20 of that same chapter, And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found and help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman 
and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. God was able to have face-to-face communion with his creation via Adam and Eve. When God had this wonderful union come together, face-to-face communion, he was able to communicate. There was no need for a medium, no need for burning bushes, no need for the minister giving the living word. God was able to look his creation right in the face and have communion. This is the great longing of Jesus. The great focus of Jesus is that he may have face-to-face communion with his bride. But one day, you know the story, that face-to-face communion got disrupted, didn't it? The Bible spells out how it happened in Genesis chapter 3. Go there with me now. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 10, Eve finds herself talking with a snake. And as she's talking and having this dialogue with this snake, eventually it says in verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, And gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife did what? They hid themselves. It says, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. It was right at this point that God in love and mercy, as much as he loved his bride, now that sin had entered into the picture, God now had to make a decision to say, either I can go ahead and be selfish and indulge in my emotions and just go ahead and behold you anyhow, but God knew, according to Hebrews 12, 29, that I'm a consuming fire. And if sin is in my direct presence, it will be destroyed. And God in love said, I can't do that. So therefore, he had to oust them out of the garden. And the face-to-face communion now had to be broken. You see, brothers and sisters, there's only one thing. It's amazing to me how we can talk about face-to-face shall I behold him in that beautiful hymn. And it is a beautiful hymn, amen? But brothers and sisters, we must understand that the only way, I want you to think about this, there's a man and there's a woman who are married and they, and they love one another. And as this husband and wife, they love one another and their family and they have children and everything. They love each other. But then one day, one of those spouses who loved each other fell into adultery. They broke the seventh commandment. Here it is that that spouse now leaves home and they're going around with this third party and they're messing around thinking that they're having a wonderful time. And they go ahead and get into the dirt of sin. But lo and behold, a time comes. Well, all of a sudden, that spouse realizes, you know what? I messed up my home. I made a horrible mistake. I need to get things right. 
So then that spouse now comes back home to the other spouse and the children, knocks on the door and says, listen, you know what? I realize what I did, but you know what? I want to come back home. I want to rebuild our home. I want to make things right. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to imagine that you were the faithful spouse. Imagine that your spouse just committed adultery, ran off with some other woman or man, went and indulged in everything that their wicked minds could conjure up. And after they finished doing all of the dirt that they wanted to do, they come back and knock on the door. Your heart is broken. Your home is broken. But they come back, they knock on the door, and they say, listen, I want to get things right. I realize I made a fool out of myself. Can you please forgive me? Well, that person asks you to forgive. And let's say because love really was in your heart that you actually said, you know what? Yes, I will forgive you. I want you to imagine what if your spouse said this? Wonderful. Since you have forgiven me, since we have a basement apartment in our house, what I'm going to do is the person that I committed adultery with, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have them move in with us. I'm going to let them go ahead and live downstairs in the basement apartment. And what I'll do is I will spend four days a week with you. But I'll spend three days a week with the other person. I just want to wean them off of the relationship. (laughs) Now, if they came to you with that type of agreement, how many of you would agree and go for that? Not one person. What if, the, what if the spouse came back and said, all right, fine, maybe I was being a little overpresumptuous. I'll tell you what, instead of it being four days with you and three days with them, I'll spend five days with you and only two days with them. You get me the majority of the time. How many of you would agree to that arrangement? Anybody? No one. What if they came back one more time and they said, all right, I'll tell you what, this is the best deal that you can get. I'll give you six days, 21 hours of my time. Just give me three hours with the third party. Give me three hours. How many of you would agree to that? It's interesting. Not one person. (laughs) Now, correct me if I'm wrong. If you were willing for your home to be restored, wouldn't you say to that spouse, spouse, If you want to make everything right with me, it is going to have to be all or, help me out, nothing. How many of us would say that? If you're going to work it out, would we say all or nothing? Is that right? So it's interesting how in an earthly relationship, we can understand that if the spouse commits adultery and messes around with the third party, it's interesting that no matter what kind of arrangement they make, as long as they're trying to hold on to that third party, there is going to be no marriage. Brothers and sisters, Adam and Eve was married to God. And there was a third party that came into the picture. And that third party was called sin. And sin broke up the face-to-face communion between God and his people. 
And many of us today, we're singing face to face, shall I behold him. We're singing all these wonderful hymns, but we don't understand that Isaiah 59 and verse 2, the Bible says that it was our sins and our iniquities that caused God to turn his face from us. And you know what many of us are doing? We're saying, all right, Lord, I'll build a relationship with you. I'll tell you what, four days of worship, four days of Bible study. Four days of prayer and giving of thanks, but three days with my darling sin. And God is saying, that would never work. Some of us are negotiating with God. All right, Lord, I'll tell you what. I'll give you five days. Worship, Bible study, prayer. I'll even join the choir. But give me two days with my darling sins. Some people are going back, all right, God, I'll tell you what, six days, 21 hours. Worship, Bible study, prayer. But just three hours with that favorite television program that your spirit already told me was no good for me. Just give me three hours with those video games that I know that I'm beholding all of the imagery that can only cause my mind to focus on that which is devilish, earthly, and sensual. Give me just three hours with that friend that I know that if I hang around them long enough, I will end up back into the bed of fornication. Give me just three hours with that movie with cursing and swearing. It's amazing how we will not say it, but we'll watch it and be entertained by it. God is trying to say, when can my people get it? That it is until they stop negotiating with me and sin and make a true sever between the adulterous party and make a full commitment to me. Because brothers and sisters, just like you, God is saying, if you really want to have face-to-face communion, if you really want to have a happy marriage, God says it must be all or nothing. We must be willing to let go of those sins that so easily beset us. If we are going to have face-to-face communion with Jesus, brothers and sisters, that means we must overcome the thing that broke the face-to-face communion. And it's only one thing that did it, and the Bible calls it sin. This is the focus of heaven. How can I get man to stop sinning? You know what's so sad? I used to be part of a Baptist church, and I understand if a Baptist says it. I used to be part of a Pentecostal church, and I understand if a Pentecostal says it. But what breaks my heart is when I go to a Seventh-day Adventist church, and I hear a Seventh-day Adventist say that we cannot have victory over sin. That we are going to keep sinning all the way up until Jesus comes. Do you know anybody who believes that? We are indirectly saying that Satan is more powerful than God. Satan is strong enough to keep me in sin, and God is too weak to deliver me from it. He can get me to stop smoking, yes. He can get me to stop drinking alcohol, yes. He can get me to stop uh, 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 cursing and swearing, but he can't help me overcome all of it. Does that make sense? So why do we have such a hard time believing that God can give us total, complete victory over sin? I think I know the reason why. Go to the book of 1 John chapter 3 with me. Let's go ahead and let's review fundamental Adventist texts of Scripture. But we're just simply going to consider it. 1 John chapter 3. You see, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3 
It says in verse 4, notice what it says. When you get there, please say amen. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, popular Adventist text, the Bible says in 1 John 3, 4, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For what? Sin is the transgression of the law. Now, because we believe that the biblical definition for sin is the breaking of God's law or God's commandments, perhaps one of the reasons why we started to develop this excuse that we cannot overcome sin and therefore we are going to live in sin and expect the Savior to come that's going to save us in sin rather than from sin, maybe one of the reasons why we fell into this trap is because every time we look to the right, we see no one who can keep God's law. Every time we look to the left, we see no one who can keep God's commandments. Children, many a times, they're looking at their mothers and their fathers, and they're expecting high results, but then they even see mommy and daddy falling into sin. Sometimes individuals who come to church, when they go ahead and look at their various leaders, their pastors and so on, they say, I see good examples. I hear high, holy messages, but at the end of the day, I see slaves to sin. I read my Bible and I go through the story of Moses and Isaiah and Daniel and so on. And though they were great men, mighty prophets, at the end of the day, they all fell into sin. And after a while, you get discouraged because you can't seem to find anybody who did it. And therefore, it becomes easier to say, look, obviously nobody can do it. So therefore, I can't do it. Maybe that's the rationale that has come in some people's minds. But brothers and sisters, I want to let you know something. It is true that sin is the breaking of God's law. It is true that when we look to many examples of those who walked on this earth in times past, as well as in our lives today, perhaps we're not seeing anybody who is truly giving a representation of the power of the gospel. That may be true. But that's why history did not stop its recording on just the life of Moses. That's why history did not stop its recording in just the life of Daniel. That's why history did not stop its recording with any of the major or minor prophets or apostles. But brothers and sisters, it was imperative that history had to record the life of a man by the name of Jesus. And I want you to notice what the Bible says specifically about Jesus. While it is true that temptation is strong, while it is true that when we look at several examples, we see individuals who keep falling, brothers and sisters, this is why the Bible tells us this wonderful record about this man named Jesus. Go to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews, the fourth chapter, I want you to see what the Bible says. We don't have to be discouraged. God has not left us without hope. While we look at our own lives and we see failure, while we look in the lives of many great prophets and apostles and so on, we see failure. While we may even look at mother and father and see failure, brothers and sisters, God says there is someone that you can look at who did not fail, and his name is Jesus. The Bible says in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, and when you get there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, verse 14, notice what it says. It says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in how many points? But was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Is that right? 
Now, when the Bible says that Jesus was without sin, where's another way that you can articulate that? It's found in John chapter 15. Notice what the Bible says in John 15. The Bible says in Hebrews 4 that he was tempted in all points, yet without sin. But there's another way the Bible makes the same point, and it's found right here in John the 15th chapter. In John the 15th chapter, notice what the Bible says. And when you get there, please say amen. Amen. The Bible says in John 15 and verse 10, notice this. It says in John 15, 10, if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Now notice that last sentence, even as I have what? kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, said the same thing, two different verses. One verse says, tempted without sin. Another verse says, I have kept my father's commandment. Talking about the same thing. Because sin is the breaking of God's law. Is that right? So then if a man can keep God's law, then that means that he has not sinned. Are you following So therefore, this is the key that we see that you and I can experience. It is not when we behold pastor. You see, my point is this. Take your eyes off of man. Too often we are so busy doing exactly what the Bible says we should not do. Go to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and let me show you what I mean. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, what is the reason why Jesus cannot come yet? What is the reason why Christ is still stuck inside of the sanctuary and cannot come and deliver his people? Because he can't save people in sin. He can only save them from it. But one of the reasons why we're stuck in sin is because we keep beholding the wrong things. Notice what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, notice what it says in verse 12. And if you're there, say amen. Exactly what God told us not to do, we're so busy doing it, and that's one of the reasons why we're in the mess that we're in today. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, it says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are wise, are not wise. One of the great reasons why we find ourselves making excuses over and over and over again for the various darling sins that we love to tantalize and play with is because, brothers and sisters, we keep looking at others and saying, well, if they're doing it, I guess it's all right for me to do it. Well, if the pastor did it, I guess it may not be that wrong. Well, if the pastor's wife is doing it, maybe it's not that bad after all. Well, if mother father is doing it, maybe it's not sin after all. We compare ourselves among ourselves, and all who do so are not wise. Take your eyes off of man. We are to fix our eyes on the only man that counts, the man who was tempted in all points and did not sin. You see, if we would stop beholding so heavily and so strongly the lives of other people, and if we were to fix our eyes on Jesus, brothers and sisters, do you know that by beholding you could become changed? That's one of the great issues that we have. We're stuck on evangelists and preachers and all these things. And when they fall, many fall with them. And we forget that inspiration told us in volume 5 of the Testimonies to the Church, page 81, that it says that the time is not far distant when the test will come to every soul. The mark of the beast will be urged upon us. And it says, many a star that we have admired for their brilliancy will go out in darkness. This is not the time for you and I to get starstruck. 
we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Can you say amen to that? Now, brothers and sisters, here's something that you need to understand. Because Jesus did it, notice what the Bible now says in Galatians chapter 2. Look at this now. If we can learn to keep the eyes on Jesus. Look at what it says in Galatians chapter 2. Watch what the Bible says. The Bible says in Galatians, the second chapter, and notice what it says in chapter 2 and verse 20. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. And when you get there, please say amen. The Bible says in Galatians 2 and verse 20, it says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When I keep my eyes on Jesus, when I accept what he has done for me and what he offers to do in me and through me, then the life that you and I live is no longer going to be this life that I live. He now will live out his life through me that now the language of 1 John 2 becomes a reality. Go to 1 John, the second chapter. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, when I accept the life of Jesus by faith, I cooperate with him, and I exercise the will on the side of God. Look at what the Bible says will happen. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and notice what it says in verse 6. And if you're there, please say amen. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6, it says, He that saith he what? Abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk as he walked. If I'm abiding in Jesus then I am to walk or live as he lived. And the life that Jesus lived was a life that he was tempted in all points, but because of trust in his Father, because of the infilling of the Holy Spirit, he was able to be tempted but not sinned, and that can be your experience if you walk in the footsteps of the Master. Now, brothers and sisters, do you ever wonder what's the end result of abiding in Jesus? It says that if we abide in Christ... We are to walk even as he walked. And do you know that when we learn how to walk in the footsteps of Jesus long enough as a result of abiding in him, do you know what the Bible says is the end result of abiding in Jesus? Chapter 3 of 1 John, verse 6. 1 John 2, 6 says, walk as he walked. 1 John 3, 6 says, notice, whosoever abideth in him, what's those next two words? Sinneth not. This is the point that God is trying to bring to us. Through the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ, you and I can have total, complete victory over sin as we cooperate with Christ as Christ cooperated with his Father. Now, this is the message of the hour. This is what Jesus seeks to accomplish. He wants us to understand that I want you to reflect my image fully so that once you can learn how to walk as I walked, I can come back and I can bring you home and there's no more mediums and now I can once again have face-to-face communion with my bride. That's the goal. Now, God knew something. God knew that the people who are going to follow Christ are going to have to follow him by faith. 
we are going to have to follow him by faith because he's not walking on this earth with us right now, is he? Is he? No. So therefore, we have to follow him by faith, but I want you to see how the Bible expresses that we do this. Brothers and sisters, stay with me. I know where I'm going. You pray. I told you to pray in your heart. The message has not even started yet. God says that this is the goal. I need to get the people to recognize that I am calling them to reflect my image, to be just like me, to walk, yea, live as I live. And when that is accomplished, I could bring them home. I could bring them home. We must enter into this experience by faith. I want you to notice what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews, the sixth chapter. In Hebrews, the sixth chapter, the Bible says in verse 16, For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for what? For refuge, to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Entereth into that with where? Within the veil. And it says, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Brothers and sisters, this same man, Jesus, he's no longer here on this earth. He now ascended into the heavenly sanctuary. And this same Jesus who is in that heavenly sanctuary, watch this. He is now calling the people to enter within the veil by faith to be with him so that we may enter into the experience that we can live like him. Are you following? The reason this becomes so important is because, brothers and sisters, There's only one message that God raised up that can bring across to the human mind the reality of the need for man to enter within the second veil where Christ is right now, that we may be there by faith and have the experience he's called us to have. That message is found in Revelation chapter 14. Turn with me to Revelation 14. The Bible says in Revelation, the 14th chapter, under the banner of the third angel's message, it tells us in verse 9, and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, 
which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image. And whosoever receiveth the mark of his name, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. The third angel's message is designed to point people to where Jesus is and how to walk with him by faith so that we will not be tripped up when the beast lays out his last act in the drama. God says, under the banner of the third angel's message, I am calling upon a group of people that in the midst of this enemy beast power who is seeking to enforce his mark, that he is warning us, do not receive it. And he says, here is the endurance, because when the beast begins to put the pressure, God's people are going to need endurance. Here is the endurance of the saints. The word saint in the Greek means most holy thing. It is interesting that the most holy thing, the most holy people, are connected to Christ in the most holy place. It is interesting that God is saying that I am calling you to endure. When the beast power begins to affect and try to bring forth his mark, I want you to endure. I want you to keep or guard or protect the experience that you're having with me in keeping my commandments and having the faith of Jesus. This is interesting. Why? Because only a seven-day Adventist can give this message. Only a seven-day Adventist understands the third angel's message, which is designed to bring the people within the veil that they can meet with Jesus by faith and live the life he lived so that they can be a people prepared to meet their God. Only a Seventh-day Adventist can faithfully herald the third angel's message. Brothers and sisters, when we understand this, the great goal of God, do you know what will happen? God's people will stop inviting people to come to our churches, to come to our schools, to come to our organizations, and to try to teach us about faith, evangelism, and the work of the gospel. Because, brothers and sisters, I'm going to say it because it's already been said. T.D. Jakes can do many things, but he cannot show us how to get into the most holy place. My dear brother who was invited by our most prestigious college recently ago, performing and talking about why we should join the ecumenical movement. Brothers and sisters, if we understood the word of God, he would never have been invited to teach our people. Because he knows not how to get God's people into the most holy place. You see, people say that Seventh-day Adventists are arrogant. People say that we're just simply being uh, big-headed and big-minded and trying to be prejudiced. No, brothers and sisters, we're just thinking people. Why would I invite you to get me somewhere that you can't get me? Brothers and sisters, notice what inspiration says. Go to the book of Luke, chapter 21. Let me show you what I mean. You see, the great focus of God is this. This is the great focus of God, and it's only when we can understand this, brothers and sisters, that these several things that are taking place in God's church will cease by the grace of God. 
The Bible says in Luke, the 21st chapter, notice what it says now as we look at verses 34 to 36. The Bible says in Luke chapter 21, 34 through 36, and if you're there, say amen. amen. The Bible says, and take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that they come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it, call, shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Look at what it says in verse 36. Watch ye therefore, and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to, what's that next word? to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus' great desire is that when the challenges of life, when the persecutions and the tribulations come amongst my people, Jesus says, I want you to enter into the right experience that when everybody else is falling, you may be able to stand. And brothers and sisters, you know what the purpose of the third angel's message is? And you want to know the reason why no one else can teach it but a seven-day Adventist? Because notice what inspiration says. God's purpose in giving the third angel's message to the world is to prepare a people to stand true to him during the investigative judgment. Brothers and sisters, T.D. Jake rejects the investigative judgment. He's not qualified. He might be a nice man. He may have godly virtues in his character, but he's not qualified to tell us how to finish the work. Because the work is only going to be finished as we give the faithful herald of the third angel's message. And what's the purpose of the third angel's message? To prepare a people to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. Does he believe that? Does our dear friend who just re visited us recently in the, in the ecumenical message, do they believe that? It's not an issue of prejudice. It's not an issue of bigotry. It's an issue of common sense. Would you invite a garbage man to teach you to be a doctor? No, you wouldn't. God is simply saying, the reason why I'm taking these stands is because this is the only message that knows how to get the people in the veil. But here's the problem. While it is true that the purpose in giving the third angel's message to the world is to prepare people to stand true to him during the investigative judgment, it says this is the purpose for which we establish and maintain our publishing houses. Do you know the whole purpose of our publishing houses was to put books into people's hands that could show them how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment? Do you know that's the whole purpose? And that's one of the reasons why you're seeing so many publishing houses going down throughout North America and throughout the world, because many individuals keep thinking they're smarter than God. God speaks plain, brothers and sisters. He says, this is why I raised up the publishing houses. And today we have so many books that can be put in people's hands, and it might teach them a whole bunch of stuff, but it does not show them how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. But then it gets deeper than that. It says... Our schools, now brothers and sisters, listen to me. The purpose of a Seventh-day Adventist school was not to hand out PhDs and MDs. It was not to put out all of these different degree titles and all these things so that people can have successful careers in this world. The purpose of Seventh-day Adventist schools was to teach people how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. Do you know it's possible to get a Ph.D. from a Seventh-day Adventist school and not even have a clue of how to help the people stand true to God during the investigative judgment? That's a sin. 
And that's why we're seeing so many schools going through so much trouble. Yay, it's not just the schools, but it says our sanitariums. Now, brothers and sisters, do you know that when God raised up the sanitariums, if you ever done a sanitary, if you ever done a study on sanitarium work, you would understand, brothers and sisters, that you would have to find it almost like a needle in a haystack to look for the kind of sanitariums that God told us we should erect. In fact, there were some sanitariums right here in California at one time. The whole purpose of a sanitarium was not to teach sick sinners how to become healthy, vibrant, strong sinners. It's possible for a man to come to many of our sanitariums and our hospitals, go in with cancer, and leave without cancer, and not know how to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. And Jesus said, that which is highly esteemed amongst the Pharisees is an abomination in the eyes of God. Wake up call. Hygienic restaurants, treatment rooms, brothers and sisters, even, do you know that when we were to make food, do you know that even in our food factories that they were put together so that it can be a medium and a tool to help the people who receive the product to understand that there is a God in heaven who holds you and I accountable for how we treat and what we put inside of this body so that we may preserve it and not violate his temple. Brothers and sisters, even food factories were put together to help a people stand true to God during the investigative judgment. And you know what's so sad? It's not our reality today, is it? And mankind thinks that we can just keep doing everything opposite of what God says, and we still get the blessings. We are just like Israel. God is trying to say to you and I, brothers and sisters, that if we don't get back on the blueprint, brothers and sisters, I'm telling you right now, God is going to get what he wants, and he's going to let a lot of things crumble if we don't get back on the blueprint as he set it up. Jesus was focused from the day Eve ate the fruit. Jesus knew the goal is to bring man into an experience of victory over sin. The only way it was going to happen is he himself had to step down, take upon the nature of Adam after the fall. Amen. Come down on this earth and live on this earth like you and I would live. Trusting in his father for everything. Tempted in all points, victorious over sin, ascended into heaven, downloads power through the Holy Spirit so you can do the same thing. And then he imparts a message to his people in the last days to let them know time is almost finished. A great crisis is just before us. And brothers and sisters, he warns us, do not receive that mark of the beast. And he says, make sure that you keep and guard and endure in my commandments and my faith so you can make it. And only faithful seven-day Adventists can give that message. And that was the purpose, not just for our schools, not just for our factories, not just for our restaurants, not just for our publishing houses, but for every line of work in the cause. Manuscript release, book one, page 228. That was the purpose, brothers and sisters. And I've never seen Israel experience true revival and reformation by ignoring a problem. You got to come face to face with the problem. 
You got to realize we're not doing what God says and we need to experience revival and reformation. You see, brothers and sisters, when we talk about Revelation 13 and we talk about that beast power, you'll remember that it was none other than the United States of America in Revelation 13, 11 that was spoken of as that second beast. We were told that that second beast, his whole mission, his whole job, go to Revelation 13, look at the whole mission according to the Bible as it relates to that second beast. Notice what it says, Revelation the 13th chapter. The Bible says in Revelation the 13th chapter, notice this now, the whole purpose of the second beast is laid out in just verses 11 and 12. The Bible says in Revelation 13, 11 and 12, it says, and I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and he spake as a dragon and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. The whole purpose of that second beast is to bring everybody back to worship the first beast. You just now understood the purpose of the U.S. The prophetic purpose of the United States of America is ultimately to bring everybody back to Rome. That's what Bible prophecy teaches. And here it is that as we were learning these things, Ever since September 11th, brothers and sisters, I have so many slides, but I'm just going to fast forward through this. In September 11, 2001, in order for America to become a place where it would begin to exercise force, because when the Bible says cause, the word means force, when it says to cause the earth. So therefore, in order for America to do that, America would have to have something take place that would basically catapult them into changing its constitutional rights so that you and I can get to the point that we can be caused to worship the beast. Ever since 9-11, brothers and sisters, it seemed as if things were moving in absolute fast forward. Notice, after 9-11, of course, there was a major response to 9-11. That major response was none other than the United States Department of Homeland Security. As soon as that started to come into the picture, all of a sudden through patriot laws and anti-terrorist laws and all these things, they started to come in hook, line, and sinker. And before you know it, it was as early as October 17, 2006, that I want you to notice this quotation. When, the Protestant, when Protestantism shall stretch her hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of Roman power, when she shall reach over the abyss to clasp hands with spiritualism, when under the influence of this threefold union, our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government and shall make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions, then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan, and that the end is near. So once we would start seeing America not only linking up with Rome and linking up with principles of spiritualism, but when we would see America begin to knock down many of its constitutional principles, it was God's way of saying, get ready, get ready, get ready. Where do we start seeing these things take place? October 17th, 2006, President George W. Bush, he suspended habeas corpus. What was that? It says, a writ of habeas corpus is a judicially enforceable order issued by a court of law to a prison official ordering that a prisoner be brought to the court so, at, so that it can be determined whether or not that prisoner had been lawfully imprisoned. Habeas corpus was literally a law put in place to make sure that if you were put in prison, that you can go ahead and present a case to show I'm innocent. 
October 17, 2006, written away. And then it was amazing how just a few years after that, the man who many thought was going to revive America and was supposedly making all these great promises, it was amazing how December 31st, 2011, it switched from President Bush to President Barack Obama. And what did he do? President Obama signed the National Defense Authorization Act 2011. What was that all about? The National Defense Authorization Act greatly expands the power and scope of the federal government to fight the war on terror, including codifying into law the indefinite detention of terrorism suspects without trial. This was put into law, brothers and sisters. And this just happened just a couple of months ago. Now, the Bible lets us know all of these things are getting ready to take place simply to lead unto the point where ultimately this thing called the mark of the beast will finally come to pass. That national Sunday law will be passed. And you know, a lot of, you know, again, when a Baptist man laughs and says the Sunday law is ridiculous, I understand. When a Pentecostal man says the Sunday law is ridiculous, I understand. But when Seventh-day Adventists say the Sunday law concept is ridiculous, that's pathetic. That's sad. That's sad. You know why? Brothers and sisters, in 1998, when Pope John Paul II wrote D.S. Domini, that little book where he was calling everyone back to Rome and going ahead and going to law, I want you to notice something that was stated of how Rome in times past would pass Sunday laws. Notice this. When through the centuries, so this was something that Rome has done for centuries, it says, when through the centuries she has made laws concerning Sunday rest, the church has had in mind, above all, the work of servants and workers. Hold on. Did you catch that? When Rome wanted to pass Sunday laws in times past, their method of doing it was focusing on servants and workers focusing on people and their workloads and how they needed a day off. Now, look at what it says. It says, she has made laws concerning Sunday rest. The church has had in mind, above all, the work of servants and workers. Certainly not because this work was any less worthy when compared to the spiritual requirements of Sunday observance, but rather because it needed greater regulation to lighten its burdens and thus enable everyone to keep the Lord's day holy. So keep in mind, Rome's method... According to the book Great Controversy 570 and 571, we are told they have not changed. Rome's method to pass Sunday laws was to focus on workers and their families and their workload and how they needed to be able to get time off so they could come to church. Focus on that. Now watch this. Therefore, also in the particular circumstances of our own time, Christians will naturally strive to ensure that civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. So in 1998, he said, listen, go ahead, go to law. Tell them you need a day off so that you can get some time with your family. Now, here's what's interesting. Oregon. In Oregon in 2008, there were all these auto dealers that started coming together. I mean, competitors, Ford going against Honda, Honda going against Toyota. But all of a sudden, they found something to unite on. You know what they united on? The need to get a day off. They said, December 5th, 2008, facing a steep economic downturn that is putting some of them out of business, Oregon auto dealers will go to the legislature. This winter, seeking some novel assistance, a guaranteed day off. 
Now, some people say, Brother Lemon, uh, I think you're being an alarmist. That's just Oregon. Stick with me. Stick with me. I'm going to show you something that just happened a month ago. Stick with me. Here it is that they were saying, we need a guaranteed day off. And they, instead of them just trusting God and taking a day off like you and I do, they're going to law. Now, here's what's interesting. Set July 19th, 2011. Fast forward. It says, Sunday should be a day for worship, rest, and time with family and friends, said Monsignor Miguel Delgado Galindo, undersecretary for the Pontifical Council for the Laity. It says, the church teaches us to set aside this day, the first day of the week, on which we remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ for divine worship and for human rest, the Monsignor recently told CNA. He says, on Sundays, Catholics should participate in the Holy Mass, the unbloody renewal of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and the greatest expression of worship and adoration that man can offer to the Lord our God. He said, Sundays should also be a day devoted to rest with what? Family and friends, he added. Notice who he quoted. Monsignor Galindo underscored the importance of blessed John Paul II's 1998 apostolic letter, Dies Domini. Sunday rest is a human necessity, he continued. So it was interesting, as we're getting closer and closer and closer to our time, we keep seeing that the agitations get closer and closer and closer as well. Now, September 27, 2010. It's 2010, but notice what was stated for 2012. The Holy See, press office Cardinal Anino Antonelli, president of the Pontifical Council for the Family, presented Benedict XVI's letter for the seventh world meeting of what? Families, which is due to be held in the Italian city of Milan from the 30th of May to June 2nd, what year? 2012, on the theme. What's his theme? The family and rest. There was a time that we sounded like alarmists, brothers and sisters. But now the evidence is speaking for itself. He wants to focus on the family and rest, but look at what else is on his agenda. Work and rest, writes the Pope in his letter, are intimately associated with the life of families. They influence the choices the family makes, the relationship between the spouses and among parents and children, and they affect the dealings the family has with society and with the church. Look at the last paragraph. The Holy Father further highlights how, in our time, unfortunately, the organization of work, which is planned and implemented as a function of market competition and maximizing profit, and the concept of rest as a time for evasion and consumption, contribute to the breakup of families and communities and to the spread of individualistic lifestyle. Look at how he closes. It is therefore necessary to reflect and commit ourselves to reconciling the demands and requirements of work with those of the family and to recover the true significance of what? Rest, especially on Sundays, the weekly Easter, the day of the Lord, and the day of man, the day of the family, of the community, and of solidarity. Wake up, brothers and sisters. It's not a joke. And you know, some people still say, Brother Lemon, I still don't believe. And like I said, if a Baptist says that, I understand. If a Pentecostal says that, I understand. But when a seven-day Adventist says that, that's pathetic. And so somebody says, show me something even more modern. Show me something that was said in 2012. No problem. CNN. CNN. The religion blog. Look at what Americans... Now, before we look at this, go to Revelation 13. Let me show you something. 
Revelation 13. In Revelation, the 13th chapter, notice this now. In Revelation, the 13th chapter, notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in Revelation 13, it says now, look at this. We finished at verse 12. Let's pick back up now in verse 13. Look at what it says. In verse 13, it says, And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth. So watch this. America is the power that is causing deception. It says they're trying to deceive the people on the earth. But look at what it says in verse 14 carefully. It says, And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that, what's the next word? That they. What's the next word? They. It says that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. So in other words, when we see the image of the beast set up, when we would see Sunday laws passed, it would not be as a result of the people up top telling the people at the bottom what to do. It says they're going to say to them that they should ask for it. Is that what Revelation says? So then when we begin to see Americans saying, we want a guaranteed day off, we want Sunday to be holy, brothers and sisters, God once again says, get ready, get ready, get ready. Now let's read the CNN article. CNN, January 1st, 2012. This is what it says. 15 faith-based predictions for what year? 2012. Now let me make this clear. I am not time-setting. I'm showing you what Rome's plan is, and I'm showing you what apostate Protestant America's plans are. Now, if you really want to know what should we be doing when we see agitations like this, you might want to write this down. Volume 5 of the Testimonies to the Church, page 717 and 718. You want to know what we should be doing? During a time like this, you want to write that down. Volume 5 of the Testimonies to the Church, page 717 and 718. You want to know what it says? It says that when we begin to see these agitations taking place throughout the world and we see this great marvelous working of Satan getting ready to take place, it says that God's people should be falling on their knees and crying unto God saying, Lord, spare us and give us a few more years because we're not ready. If only we understood what's going to take place when this Sunday law passes. We are so not ready. We are to plead with God, not so we can go ahead and find a husband, not so we can find a wife, not so we can get our degrees and get a career and do all the great things of life. No, brothers and sisters, we should be saying, Lord, give me a few more years so I can take your message seriously. I can receive the experience of the third angel. I can enter within the veil. That's why you're praying for a few more years. Help me to get ready. Use me that I can help others get ready. That's the goal. Now, 15 faith-based predictions for 2012. To ring in the new year, CNN's belief blog asks experts in religion, faith leaders, and a secular humanist about how the forces of faith and faithlessness will shape the world in 2012. Here's what they told us. Now, they had 15. Notice what they listed as number nine. Sabbath becomes trendy. 
Fourth commandment makes a comeback. Sabbath named times person of the year. Are they talking about the seventh day? No. It says a new movement sweeps the country. A new what? A new movement sweeps the country. It says they call themselves 24-6. You might want to Google them. Worn out by being tethered to the grid 24-7, sick of being accessible all hours of the day, inundated by updates, upgrades, and breaking news, who? Americans finally rebel, demanding we need a day off. It wasn't just Oregon. Americans are asking for it. People all over the country go offline for 24 hours every week. The simple break from the frenetic pace results in lowered cholesterol rates, fewer speeding tickets, and a reduction in marital strife. Peace, tranquility, and contentment spread like wildfire. Now, it's amazing. We watch these agitations, and because Satan has convinced us to hate the spirit of prophecy so much, and we don't read it, we forgot this quote right here. Political corruption is destroying love of Jesus and regard for truth. And even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, it says, will yield to the what kind of demand? Popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. It says liberty of conscience, which has caused so great a sacrifice, will no longer be respected. In the soon coming conflict, we shall see exemplified the prophet's words. The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Great controversy, 592. Brothers and sisters, we've been warned. We've been told. We were told this was going to come. And you know what's so powerful? Like I told you, there was a time people used to laugh at us. There was a time people used to look at us and say, those Seventh-day Adventists, they're fanatical, they're crazy. But now all of these agitations are taking place. Many people are not laughing anymore. And do you know we were even told that? Notice. Heretofore, those who presented the truths of the third angel's message have often been regarded as mere alarmists. It says their predictions that religious intolerance would gain control in the United States, that church and state would unite to persecute those who keep the commandments of God, have been pronounced groundless and absurd. It has been confidently declared that this land could never become other than what it has been, the defender of religious freedom. But as the question of enforcing Sunday observance is widely agitated, The event so long doubted and disbelieved is seen to be approaching, and the third message will produce an effect which it could not have had before. Like never before. You see, brothers and sisters, like never before, this world is ripe to hear the third angel's message. Like never before. There was a time we would look like fools if we told the people about all these things taking place. But do you know that now the world is ripe? The world is just looking for somebody who can connect the dots. And brothers and sisters, apostate Protestantism can't do it. Islam can't do it. Hinduism can't do it. The atheists, the New Agers, nobody can do it. There's only one movement that God put on this earth filled with love, brothers and sisters. And he said, I raise them up. So they can give the message. And you know what? We hate our message so much, we're now inviting people with foul messages to come and occupy our pulpits and teach our people. 
We are blind. But God says, I have eyes off. God says, I have eyes off. I am willing to give my eyes off to anybody that's willing to receive it. But God says, take your eyes off of men. Stop looking to people to wait for their approval and permission to go and do the work God already told us to do. God says, wake up. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, I have found that my prayer life has increased. As a result of seeing these, my prayer life has increased. I have apologized to God. I have apologized to anybody that I've ever been a distraction to. I said, Lord, please forgive me. Help me to finally get this thing right. Time is almost finished. And the question is asked, do you reflect the lovely image of Jesus as you should? She said, I said, my attending angel unto me, get ready, get ready, get ready. You will have to die a greater death to the world than you have ever yet died. Brothers and sisters, Revelation 2.10 says, be thou faithful unto death. For it is then and only then that we shall receive our crown of life. Run to Jesus within the veil, for it is there that we have refuge. Cease to trust in your own selves, your own powers, your own capabilities, your own ideas and your own plans. Surrender it all. Lay it on the altar. Go before God and start all over again. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you the truth. You know what we've been told? You want to know why I'm giving this with such a sense of urgency? So many people say, Brother Lemon, why are you making such a big deal out of this? We heard these things. That's the problem. We hear, but we do not. We hear, but we do not. I read a little book called Great Controversy, page 608. It says, as the storm approaches, a large class. What kind of class? A large class of those who have professed faith in the third angel's message, but who were not sanctified by obedience to the truth, will abandon their position. Join ranks with the opposition and become the most bitterest enemies of their former brethren. That hurts. There's approximately 17 to 18 million Seventh-day Adventists and a large class are going to turn their backs on Jesus. Why? Because they did not allow themselves to be sanctified by obedience to the truth. When will we cease to talk about God and start to live for God? I come from the hip-hop and R&B industry. I know what it is to get caught up in the stuff in the world. I know what it is to get caught up in all these things of the world. It's only by the grace of God that I'm out of that mess. It's only by the grace of God. I would, if somebody would have told me that one day you're going to give your heart to Jesus, join the Advent band, and herald the third angel's message, I would have said, you're crazy. But God knew what he was doing. And this is the best thing that ever happened to me, to receive this message in my heart. And God just started with me, brothers, and I'm not finished yet. I'm still a work in progress. Amen. But I praise God I'm on the heavenward journey. Amen. The question is, are you? Brothers and sisters, if you're going to keep indulging in things that you know are separated between you and God, all it's going to lead is to a life of unhappiness, discontent, temporary pleasure with greater pain in the end, and then ultimately complete separation from Jesus. What sin in the world is so attractive and so fun that we would hold on to it 
and lose out on life eternal and lose out on heaven, even heaven on earth, as well as the heaven to come. I can't think of a single sin. Brothers and sisters, the focus of Jesus is to have face-to-face communion with his bride. The focus of Jesus is to bring into yours and my experience victory over sin. The focus of Jesus is to bring us by faith within the veil because where Jesus is, there is safety. And God gave the right message to the right people to enter into the right experience. What will you do with it? And so tonight, if you know, if you know you have not been experiencing the power of the third angel's message, slave to sin, indulging in habits of sinful lifestyle, you know what your issues are. If you know that there are things in your life, you haven't been taking this thing seriously. If you know, I have not been taking my walk with Jesus seriously. And tonight you're saying, you know what? Lord, you have helped me see that time really is almost finished. You have opened my eyes. You have helped me to behold wondrous things from your word. And now I see like I've never seen before. I'm not ready. I am not ready for this. And you're saying, Lord, help me to be ready. You're saying, Lord, I'll cooperate with you. I lay my plans at the altar. Because I'm telling you right now, some of you are in the pursuit of certain careers right now, and God is going to change it. Some of you right now, you're getting ready to marry certain individuals, and God may say, not the one. Some of you are getting ready to go certain places, to buy certain things and so on, and God is saying, that was your plan, not my plan. We need to reevaluate every decision we make. Go back to the drawing board and say, Father, once again, forgive me for exalting my opinion above your word. Once again, take me back to your word. I will get back on your blueprint. And it is those who cooperate with Jesus. Those are the ones that will enter within the veil. Because the body will be connected to the head. And they will follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. If it's your desire to say, Lord, I want to be one of those people who will follow you wheresoever you may lead. I'm inviting you to stand to your feet. It does not matter what position you hold. It does not matter where you are in your experience. You know that you are not ready, but tonight you're saying, Lord, by your grace, I will be ready. You're standing to your feet. Now, while you're standing to your feet, I know that there are many who have recommitted their hearts to Jesus. You're renewing your walk with him. You're recognizing those areas where you've fallen short, and now you want to get things right. So therefore, you stood up. But there may be someone here who has never given the heart to Jesus. You've never done it. You might have been invited here by a friend because they were hoping you'd hear something. You might have come because you were curious. You might have come for whatever the reason may be. And you just might be in the church, but not in Jesus. There's a difference. If you've never truly 
gone before God and said, Lord, I give my life to you. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. You're not renewing your commitment. You've never made a commitment. And if you've never made a commitment and tonight is the night that you're making your first commitment to Jesus. I remember when I was committed to Satan, I was bold about it and I showed the world how committed I was to him. Tonight, if you're saying, you know what, Lord, I remember committing my life to Satan and I was bold about it. So tonight, I'm going to commit my life to you for the first time and I'm going to be bold enough about it that I'm going to come up front. If you've never committed your life to Jesus before, you've never given your heart to him, don't worry about your position in the church. Don't worry about your job. Don't worry about how popular you may be in the eyes of others. If you know, I have never taken God seriously and I have never given my heart to him and tonight is the first time that I'm doing it and I'm willing to make it public. Would you be willing to come up front? Would there be one person who would be willing to say, you know what, I don't care who's looking at me. There's nobody in here who can put you in heaven or hell. You don't worry about who's looking at you. This is between you and Jesus. If you know first time, this is my first time. Perhaps you've been in an Adventist school. You might have been in Adventist surroundings. You might have even come to the church, but you never met Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And tonight you're saying, you know what? I'm yours. Lord, I'm yours. Save me. Would there be even one? Would there be even one? I want to pray with you because you're going to need people to pray with you. You have entered into a battle and you're going to need prayer. You're going to need the prayers of those who love you. Would there be even one? As you stand, I want you to know that Christ stands with you. He will not leave your side as long as you don't leave his side. Abide in him, and he will abide in you. And as you abide in him, remember the end result. If any man abides in Christ, he sinneth not. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the blessed hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, we recognize that time is almost finished, and you're calling us to enter within the veil. Please, Lord, help us to enter in by faith, to be where Jesus is, so that we can truly overcome as he overcame is our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This message is produced by PTH Ministries. Our mission is to spread the three angels' messages through preaching and teaching the Seventh-day Adventist message and to integrate healing through medical missionary work in declaring the gospel. For more information on our ministry and the resources we provide, please log on to our website at www.pthministries.com. That's www.pthministries.com. Or you can call us at 770-274-9537. That's 770-274-9537. May we do our part to meet the needs of humanity through the everlasting gospel and hasten Christ's return. Maranatha.